We can open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll try to go through the whole chapter. I'd like to start by expressing a really great gratitude for your partnership with us uh, in so many ways. I don't know if everyone's aware of how many ways and times you guys have helped us in the last couple years, but it's been quite a few uh, like Kevin mentioned, the the video, uh, I contacted Ross and asked him if he knew someone who could help us make a video, and he helped us with that. And um, we have to take a trip to Poland this week, unexpected trip. We'll fly on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, when unexpected things happen, they don't fit in the budget anyway. And uh, Ross reached out, and or maybe Kevin, and asked if you guys could help, and you guys gave us a huge gift to help pay for those costs. And um, Ross came and visited us, was able to meet uh, some of those people that you saw in the video. Um, So thank you. Um, One of the cool things about missions is this task is so huge, this idea that we would take a family from our culture, send them to some other culture around the world. They would learn that language and try to plant a church there. And that task is so big that no person can do it. No family can do it. So a bunch of us have to partner together and work together in that cause. And that's a beautiful thing. And uh, I'm truly grateful for for you guys and our other uh, partners who who make it possible for us to go there. Um, As I was preaching a few years ago, uh, at some point after the service, one of my daughter's who um, try to be respectful to me about my preaching, said, um, Dad, when you're preaching today, you said that that passage is your favorite in the Bible. But you've said that about many other passages. You said it about Romans 8, Psalm 139, 1 Corinthians 4. How are we supposed to understand that? And that's true. I have a habit of doing that. You start studying a chapter in a week and you get all excited about it. And then you stand up and proclaim things. My favorite chapter. But we're going to add to that list Philippians 1. It's great. Um, Paul loves these people. You know, he planted the church in Philippi. And so in this chapter, he opens up. He tells them personal things about himself, about how greatly he's suffering. At one point in this chapter, the one verse sounds like what he's saying is that he'd rather die at this point um, and go and be with Jesus. Um, I find it helpful to hear about other Christians' suffering. It reminds me, I think it can remind us that we're not alone. However, this chapter where Paul opens up and talks about his suffering, it's not often referred to as a chapter of suffering. Uh, It's often referred to as a chapter about joy. In fact, Philippians is sometimes called the epistle of joy. Um, So doesn't that sound interesting? That we have a chapter that has two main points. And those points are suffering and joy. Let's get into that. So uh, I kind of have it broken down into three sections. The first 11 verses are a bit of an introduction, and Paul is expressing his great love for the church in Philippi, and he says the ways that he prays for them. And then uh, from verse 12, he gets autobiographical and gives them some details about the situation that he's in and his suffering. And then he ends the chapter with a command, or possibly it could be interpreted as a couple commands. Um... Before we go any further, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you that we can call you Father. 
you're holy and we're sinners and it's only through Christ that we can even come into your presence and bring our request to you and thank you that you've made a way for us to come to you this morning. Um, we need you. We, I need you as I try to preach through this chapter and we as listeners need you to do your work in our hearts. Um, please send your Holy Spirit and work and cause us to have a greater hope than we already do. Uh, remind us of who you are and your love for us. Um, do your work in our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, baker bakes, a sailor sails, a farmer farms. Who you are affects what you do. At the beginning of these letters, we often see that Paul wants to talk about identity. In Christianity, our actions flow out from who we are. So it's essential that we have a clear understanding of who we are, that we know this identity we have in Christ. Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants. That's the word he chose I don't think there's many people in this modern world who are going to start off with that word. We hear people like to use the word, introduce themselves, I'm a director, I'm a manager, I'm an executive manager, a team leader, hello, I'm a CEO. Doesn't it seem like every job these days has an impressive title? Do secretaries even exist anymore? We have executive assistants. I don't think there are any more assembly line workers. We have production technicians. I, I don't think I know all the right terms, these impressive titles to every job. I don't think we would see too many people in the world that we live in going the route that Paul goes. He opens up with, I'm a servant. Right from the first verse, the first words, we read something shocking. But our translation doesn't help us to see how shocking it actually is because that word means slave. In the Roman Empire, in the first century, one of the most important things to identify who a person is was to go to this question. Are you a free man or a slave? There were many slaves. And Paul, from the very start, he wants to make it clear that he's not in the category of freemen. He's a slave. His life doesn't belong to himself. He was bought with a great price. He wants to make it clear that he's one who's under authority. He has a Lord over him. Paul is communicating that he doesn't decide for himself, but he's a man who gets orders from his Lord. The words in the Bible matter, and the word slave we have in verse 1 is worth taking some time to meditate on. In the very same verse, we have the extremely important word saint. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The word saint means set apart. There are all the people of the world... And then there's a category of those who are set apart. They're set apart for God to be his special people. 
They've been purchased by Jesus Christ. They're not common. They're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but they're set apart and they're called sons and daughters of God. And we'll see that they're set apart for a purpose, for a mission. They play a key role in God's plans for the world. Then Paul goes on to express his great love for this congregation. And he says that he prays for them. Verse 7, we have a cool phrase. He says, I hold you in my heart. Paul planted this church. He knows these people. He's the one that shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them. He's their teacher, their Christian father. They love Paul and Paul loves them. In verses 3 and 4, he assures them that he regularly prays for them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And we see from verse 9 and following that he doesn't just pray generally for them, but he tells them specific prayer requests that he prays for them. As we pray for our loved ones, as I pray for my wife and daughters, as you pray for those close to you, let's not just pray very general prayers. God bless them. God help them. But let's use some specifics. And if you can't come up with some, if you don't know what to pray, then we can just use Paul's. He gives us a good example from starting in verse 9. Let's go through those real quick. Verse 9 through 11. And as I read it, notice that there's a progression in these verses. He prays that there be love in their hearts, which is going to affect their minds, which is going to affect their actions, and that's going to prepare them for that day when they're going to stand before the Lord. He says like this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, and that's not the end of the prayer, to the glory and praise of God. So his prayer all starts with love. They already have this love. He doesn't pray that love would be given to them. At the moment of new birth, we're given a new heart. And one aspect of that new heart is that we now love things we didn't love before. We have Jesus' heart put into us at the moment of new birth. We begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. However, apparently, at the moment of new birth, that love of God that is poured into us isn't automatically, perfectly mature. Paul is praying here that this love that they have would increase, would mature, would grow. He says, that your love may abound. And then he adds the words, more and more. Did you ever feel that sometimes in modern Christianity we can talk about Christianity as like a sort of sort of stoicism, that what we as Christians are to do is have this stiff upper lip and have fewer passions, get less worked up about things. Paul doesn't want their hearts to be less moved. 
He wants their affections to be greater. A greater love than they have now. A greater tenderness. His prayer for them is not only greater love, but that this love would mature. Your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Discernment. So we would know what we should love and what not to love. The culture we're living in right now acts as if love is always good and hate is always bad. But biblically, it's not that simple. Let's say that there are two women. And right now, one of those women is feeling hate. And right now, one of those women is feeling love. Which woman is righteous? Well, that depends. Depends on what they're loving and what they're hating. We read, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hand that sheds innocent blood. We read, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So hating is not always bad. Loving is not always good. This prayer is very interesting. Paul is praying that they love more, have greater passions, but he's also praying that these passions they have would mature. He's praying that what they love right now would change. This is good news for us. What you love today, what you like today, the things you prefer today, doesn't have to be what you will always prefer and always love for the rest of your life. Paul is talking about things that are even more fundamental at a lower level in our life than our minds. Of course, our actions flow out of our minds, and fundamental to being a Christian is a renewal of our minds. But here in this prayer, Paul is praying for a change in their life that's at this heart level. At this level of what they love or like or prefer. Let's say that there's a child who only likes french fries and ketchup and won't eat anything else. Well, that's not good. That's not healthy. We would hope that one day that child's going to have enough self-discipline to force themselves to eat some vegetables, some dairy, some meat. But that's not our ultimate goal. We hope that one day the child will enjoy eating vegetables, dairy, and meat. As we train up children, we don't just want them to grit their teeth and obey the standard. We want them to love the standard. Our preferences, our tastes can change, and in many cases should change. I think we can too quickly give ourselves excuses Like, reading theology just isn't for me. That's not my cup of tea. Or, going to small group, that's just not my thing. Okay, fair enough. But there's good news in this chapter. Things that are deeply ingrained in us can change. And the progression goes on. That your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent 
and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Love will affect our discernment. Our discernment will lead to a change in behavior so that on that day when we stand before Christ, our life will be filled with these fruits of righteousness. So far, we've seen a three-step progression, a change of heart, which leads to a discerning mind. This discerning mind changes the way the person uses their tongue and their hands and their feet and their very life so that they use up their life pouring it into the things that God loves and standing against the things that God hates. What a beautiful prayer. Paul's praying for an entirely changed life that comes out of new loves in their heart. But this entirely changed life isn't the end of his prayer. It's the penultimate goal. There's one more thing in the prayer at the end of verse 11 filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. From the day of your new birth to the day that you stand before your Lord, you will be gloriously transformed. Not just on the outside, not just new actions, but from the inside out, a new heart leading to a changed mind to new actions And who will get the glory for this beautiful transformation that's going to take place in the children of God? The one responsible for the transformation. Is there any habit in your life and you feel that that will never change? You've seen it in your parents. It's been in your life now for more than 30 years. And you feel completely helpless to change it. God can change sinners. God does change sinners. Only God can do it, and only he will get the glory. That's why we have Paul in this passage not just preaching to the church in Philippi, not just writing to the church in Philippi, but what he's doing is praying. Praying. Dear God, change them. Do what no person can do. And may your name be praised for your work. May you get all the credit. May you get all the glory. Brother or sister, God is at work in your life. He's making you beautiful from the inside out for your good and for his glory. In the next section, starting from verse 12, Paul explains that this glorious work that God is doing in and through his people is painful for the people. God's work in and through Paul is nothing less than suffering. In verse 12, he writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, so that's his arrest and imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, so these soldiers who are guarding him, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he clarifies to them. He says, this thing that you're looking at that looks bad, be assured that it's being used to advance the gospel. His focus is very positive, but as we're reading it, we're free to notice that there's some difficulties involved. Look at verse 17. He says, 
The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So this is what he's saying. There are people inside the church. I don't know if they're born again or not born again, but people inside the church who are using Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for personal gain and an opportunity to discredit Paul, to hurt his reputation. As I try to put myself in that situation, I'm the pastor of a church, I've been arrested because of my faith, and then some of the people in the church view that as an opportunity to lift up themselves and to try to hurt my reputation. That's quite a blow. Look down at verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Have you ever been that low? Maybe you have. At a place in your life where you think, at this point, I'm not sure if it would be better to live or die. All of his plans have come to a screeching halt. He's arrested, he's thrown in probably like a hole in the ground. As you read the New Testament, you see what sort of a guy Paul is. He has plans. He is moving. He goes to this town, he preaches the gospel, he's there for a full three weeks, a church is planted, and he's on to the next town. He's there for a year and a half, plants a church, and he's on to the next town. This is a guy that has plans. He's already talked about that he'd like to get to Rome and see the Christians that are there at Rome on his journey further to get to Spain. And all of his desire to share the gospel and to build the kingdom of God has all come to a halt. And he's sitting in a hole. And then we have verse 18. I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I want that. I want whatever Paul has. In great suffering, in his plans being ruined, in the people that he was trying to help, some of them are trying to hurt his reputation, he rejoices. Let's try to figure that out. He immediately points out that there are two good fruits that have come from his arrest. He now has access to guards that he wouldn't have otherwise had access to. These people have heard the gospel. And secondly, his arrest has caused other men in the church to proclaim the gospel more boldly. So in his perspective, we begin to see a key to his joy. The goal of his life is not some sort of personal goal of personal achievement or comfort, but the goal of his life is the building of the kingdom of God. Paul's goal is to spread the gospel. His life's mission is that Christ's name will be known and lifted up. And there's a direct link here between Paul's goal in life, his mission, and his joy. We see a link between Paul's mission and Paul's joy. C.S. Lewis wrote, Do not let your happiness be based on something that you can lose. Beloved, God is building his church. 
and he will build his church. If you commit your life to this mission, the spread of the gospel, the lifting up of Jesus Christ, then you can find joy both in times of health and sickness, in times of wealth and poverty, in times of fellowship and loneliness. Let's look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my life, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His hope is absolutely unshakable. He has complete confidence that Christ will be lifted up, either through his life Or through his death. And since Christ is going to be lifted up. And that's Paul's goal. Then he will rejoice. I can imagine. That at this point. Someone could respond and say. Okay. But I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church planter. Paul's life is spreading the kingdom. And through his death. Somehow the kingdom will be spread. But I'm just an average Christian. I don't really see how his joy is applicable to joy in my life. And I would respond by saying, both in the Old and New Testaments, God has clearly shown that he loves to use the young, the unknown, the weak, the sick, those that none of us would expect him to use. The kingdom of God will not be built through a handful of giant heroes doing a handful of heroic acts. No, the kingdom of God will be built through millions of unknown Christians. There are two institutions that God has ordained to build his kingdom. The family unit and the local church. Of course, it's a glorious thing when two young Christians leave their parents and plant a new Christian family. Of course, it's a glorious thing when a small group of Christians leave one church to go out and plant a new church. But for most of us, we're already in a family. We're already in a church. And the primary way that we can give our lives for the building of God's kingdom, give our lives so that Christ will be lifted up, is to pour ourselves into our family and into our church. Give up your life. Spend it. Pour it out. For the good of your family, for the good of your local church. That's how his kingdom will grow. It's glorious when a husband takes upon himself the responsibility of leading his family. It's a glorious thing When a wife takes upon herself the responsibility of following the lead of her husband. It's a glorious thing for parents to take upon themselves the responsibility of educating their children and training them up in the Lord. These are not little unimportant acts. They're literally world changing. No local church is perfect, but we are each called to choose a local church submit to the elders there, and pour ourselves into that congregation. What Paul says in our chapter about himself, to remain in the body is for your sake a more necessary thing, 
That's not just true about people like apostles. It's not just that apostles are necessary. Every member of the body of Christ is essential for the health of the body. You. Your family needs you. Your local church needs you. Commitment to family, commitment to the local church are the foundations of the Christian life. And in these seemingly mundane and unspectacular commitments, we join ourselves to the goal of the church of Jesus Christ across the continents and across the centuries. And we, like Paul, can have all confidence and say together with him, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's not true that suffering is unbearable. Senseless suffering is unbearable. Suffering with no purpose is unbearable. But Christians have the ability to bear suffering with an inner peace and hope and joy that will confuse those who are observing us. Because we know that our suffering has a purpose. It's going to be used by God, either in our own sanctification or for the good of his kingdom. We know that he loves us and he would not allow this suffering in the lives of his children if he didn't have a reason for it. So at this point, we've made it through two of the three sections in the chapter. The introduction, Paul's autobiographical explanation of his joy in suffering. And let's take just a couple minutes to look at the third and final section. From verses 27 and following, he gives them a sort of command. Only, only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or else I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he doesn't say to them simply, uh, stand firm, be steadfast. He says, stand firm together. We as Americans can sometimes be too independent. Link arms with your brothers and sisters in the faith and stand firm together. In verse 28, we read, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. That's a cool verse. Notice the word clear sign. What, what's this clear sign of their destruction? The fact that we aren't frightened in anything. It says, not frightened in anything by your opponent. This is a clear sign. The fact that we have a rock-solid peace and joy in the midst of suffering. So imagine that you're somehow up on a hill and looking down on a battlefield and about to 
to fight in this battle are two armies. On the one side, we have a 100 soldiers. On the other side, we have 5,000 soldiers. And as you're looking, it seems like the 100 soldiers aren't very concerned about this situation. They're laughing, they're joking, eating the sandwiches their wives packed for them. And as the two armies begin to draw near to each other, you still notice that the 100 soldiers about to fight 5,000 soldiers are still fine, full of joy and hope. At some point, the 5,000 soldiers are going to start thinking, do they know something we don't know? And the answer is yes. We belong to a God who fights for us. We're not alone. We're not orphans here. Paul writes for us, but also shows us an example about how we're to go through difficulties, not frightened in anything. This world may notice your peace and your hope and your joy and might begin to think, why do they have such joy when it looks to me like they're in an awfully bad spot? There's a figure in church history, Athanasius of Alexandria. He's born in the third century. He held to a correct understanding of Christ, that Jesus was at the same time God and man. In those days, Arianism, a heresy that attacked the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus, was becoming very popular. And at some point, someone comes to Athanasius and tells him, the whole world is against you. And that declaration didn't change anything in his life. He just continued to teach the truth he'd always taught. He isn't very well known today, but if you've heard of him, you've probably heard of this one Latin phrase that he's sometimes known by, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. As if, if the whole world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Let us go out into the troubles of this world with a deep and stable peace because we belong to an almighty God. May our peace be obvious to those who are watching us. And let's conclude with verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. It means it's a gift. Two gifts. For the sake of Christ, not because you deserve it, for the sake of Christ, two things have been given to you. That you believe in him and also suffer for his sake. If you believe today, you may not be aware that it was God who poured this belief into your heart, but that's why God gives us his word to reveal things to us that we wouldn't know otherwise. The faith that you have was a gift given to you. And the verse talks about a second gift. Suffering. Suffering has been given to you. There's a significant strand of Christendom today that tries to twist the entire Bible so that neither of these things come to us from God. But Paul rejoices in his suffering. Why? Because he believes that not only is healing used by God, not only is wealth used by God, 
Not only those who are strong and powerful are used by God, but our God is a God who can use sickness and poverty as well as health and riches. Paul rejoices that his suffering is not senseless. He rejoices that he is being used and used up for a great purpose. He's being used by God. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What we read in the first verse of the chapter is crucial to understanding the chapter. Paul looks at his life in such a way that his life doesn't belong to himself. Common perspective in the world today is that the world exists for me. The money, the house, the job, the food, the spouse, even the children, everything goes toward the ultimate goal of me being fulfilled in this life. In great contrast to that is the perspective that Paul lays out for us in this chapter. That the house, the job, the money, even his health and his body, his time, his talents, his goals don't belong to him. They don't serve his fulfillment but they belong to the Lord and are to be used for him. Brother and sister, you don't exist for one small personal goal. You belong to the church, the body of Jesus Christ. You've been called out from the world, purchased, and have the privilege of taking part in an eternal plan for a glorious purpose. Give your life to this purpose, and your life will not be wasted. None of your suffering will be wasted. Let us rejoice together with our brother Paul that we're slaves of Christ. We live, suffer, and die for the glory of our Lord. Let us stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters around the world and pour out our lives for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Dear God, um, help us to understand that um, giving up our lives, maybe on a Sunday morning, um, hearing it preached can sound like an easy thing, but that it's costly to give up our lives for the good of our family, to invest our lives in our family and our local church, giving up our comfort, giving up our plans. Um, We certainly can't do this in our own power. We pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to live as if we truly are slaves, as if you are our Lord. Help these words not just be something that we say, but help us to uh, walk in line with with, um, these truths that we know in practice this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.